Genesis <coughs> chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9 this morning. <coughs> Genesis chapter 9 and just read from verse 1. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Let's open with the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity uh, to gather together in this place and to gather around your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time now, that you would give us understanding of the passage before us, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. May we be blessed and refreshed by your word. May we learn of you. Uh, may we learn, uh, Lord, of the truths contained therein. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just be on and glorified. I pray that you empower me now through the Spirit. Help me to speak uh, with that which you'd have me to speak this morning. And Lord, may you be praised, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, last Sunday we concluded uh, Genesis chapter 8. And it concludes with God's promise Uh, to forbear with mankind. Let's just read verse 21 and 22 to refresh our memories there. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 21, it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And so we saw that God said in his heart, God made this decision uh, in his heart with himself, uh, this resolution that he would not add to the curse that he'd already brought upon the earth because of man's sin. And he also made that decision he wouldn't destroy the earth again with a flood, destroy all life. And God made this decision even though uh, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. We talked about the fact that that's a reference to the fact that we're all sinners. We're born in sin. We're born with a sin nature. But God understood that what we needed is a redeemer to redeem us from the curse uh, that's brought upon us by sin. And so God determined to forbear with mankind. And we saw the wonderful blessing that God's forbearance will last while ever the earth remaineth. And while ever God forbears, we saw that those things will continue. No seed, time, and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. It's a wonderful promise from God that these natural processes will continue until the day of judgment comes, the day of the Lord. And now as we come to chapter 9, we see the Lord once again speaks directly with his servant Noah. In verses 1 through to 17 here, we have recorded God's own words. Okay, God's own words unto uh, his servant Noah. And these words can be divided into two parts, verse 1 through to 7, which we're going to look at this morning, and then verse 8 through to 17. In verse 1 to 7, we have man's, uh, God speaks about man's responsibility in this new world. And then in verses 8 through to 17, God declares his gracious covenant with mankind. And so this morning, as I said, we want to focus on verses 1 to 7. We want to look at God's instructions to Noah and indeed to mankind. And we see here this morning that there are three mandates, three mandates that God gives to Noah here and indeed all mankind. And so first of all, this morning, we see the renewal 
of the original divine mandate. You, the renewal of the original divine mandate. Look there in verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. And so in these verses, what we read is essentially a renewal of the original divine mandate that God had given to Adam and Eve back there in the Garden of Eden. If you turn back to chapter 1 with me, chapter 1 and verse 28, this is God's original mandate to Adam and Eve. It says in verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every (coughs) living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so the two here are very similar, aren't they? Okay, there's slight modifications here, as we'll see. But essentially, what God does now is he gives this mandate again to Noah and his sons, to mankind. He renews this mandate. You see, just as Adam and Eve have been instructed to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, Noah and his three sons are now instructed to do the same. Instructed to uh, now multiply and to populate the earth, to spread out upon the earth and to fill the earth with life. And we see this instruction also repeated not only in verse 1 there in chapter 9, but also in verse 7. It says, And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Now, from the very beginning, God's design for mankind was that we would spread over the whole earth, that we would multiply and, and fill the earth, and of course, that we would have dominion, exercise dominion over it. Now, that was the second half of that mandate back in chapter 1, verse 28. It continues on and it says, And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth. Okay, and this is where the two mandates differ. Uh, uh, differ a little bit. Okay, this section that's found in chapter 1, verse 28, where it says subdue and have dominion, that's not recorded here in chapter 9, is it? Okay, if you read there in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you should be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. And so there is a slight difference here in the way that it's worded. Okay? In chapter 1, as I said, it says subdue and have dominion over. And that's not found here in chapter 9. And this is because a change has taken place in the world since chapter 1, verse 28. Since God gave that original mandate, something's changed, hasn't it? And that, of course, is sin. Okay? Sin has entered into the world. Now, originally, Adam and Eve, they dwelt at peace with the animals. They dwelt at peace with God's creation there in the garden. God's perfect order had been established. Adam was God's caretaker. You know, he was tasked with caring for and using God's creation to God's glory. But sin entered into the world and, of course, death by sin. And so things have changed since the garden. The harmony, the the peace that existed there in the Garden of Eden, that's lost. That's changed. That's gone now. It no longer exists. But man is still tasked with exercising dominion over God's creation. But now we're told that the animals will fear 
and dread man, as we saw there in verse 2. Okay? Now the animals are going to fear and dread mankind. God makes it clear the animals will naturally have this fear of man from this point on. Okay? This is something uh, that is inbuilt in them. This is part of their nature. Okay? The animals naturally flee from man. They flee from the dwelling places of man. They don't want to be amongst us, except, of course, those that we train and we use and domesticate, but animals in general flee from the presence of man. There is a natural fear and dread inbuilt in the animals. Uh, Jamison Fawcett Brown, he writes this, the second part reestablishes man's dominion over the inferior animals. It was now founded not as at first in love and kindness, but in terror. This dread of man prevails among all the stronger as well as the weaker members of the animal tribes, and keeps away from his haunts all but those employed in his service. And that's the, that's the reality. Animals in general fear mankind. It's still true today, isn't it? Okay, they have this fear, this dread of man, a natural response built into uh, the animals, their nature. And, you know, there's a very good reason for this. You know, it protects mankind. You think about Adam and, 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 sorry, not Adam, Noah and his family as they come off the ark here, there's only eight souls, isn't there? Okay, there's all the animals. And the animals are going to quickly multiply a lot quicker than Noah and his family can. They're going to quickly multiply and, and, and spread. And, and so, for, in a sense, this is for Noah's protection, Noah and his family's protection, that there is this fear, this dread, so that they don't overrun Noah and his family. And so, as I said, it's, it's as much for man's protection as it is for anything else. And indeed, that's still true today. And Clark writes this, he says, After the fall, savage ferocity prevailed among all, almost all orders of the brute creation. Enmity to man seems particularly to prevail. And had not God in his mercy impressed their minds with the fear and, and terror of man, so that some submit to his will, while others flee from his residence, the human race would long ere have been totally destroyed by the beasts of the field. He then goes on and writes this. He said, Did the horse know his own strength and the weakness of the miserable wretch who unmercifully rides, drives, whips, goads, and oppresses him? Would he not with one stroke of his hoof destroy his tyrant possessor? And that, I think that illustration with the horse sums it up, doesn't it? Okay? If the animals realize their strength in relation to man, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? You see, God has built into them this natural fear and dread of mankind. And the point is that this, this instilled fear and dread enables us to fulfill God's mandate. It enables us to exercise dominion on this earth. Okay, it enables us to do what God told Adam, right back in Genesis chapter 1, and what he tells Noah and his family to do now, to exercise this dominion. You know, verse 2 ends with the phrase, it says, Into your hand are they delivered. God delivers all of the, the creatures into the hand of man. God in his divine providence has made it possible for man to control, to train, to use the animals of the earth as needed. You know, we, they've been delivered into man's hand, and in a sense we are free to use them as we would and as we have need. But of course we're to do it as responsible stewards, aren't we? Responsible stewards of God's creation. 
under God's jurisdiction. And one of the ways that the animals are delivered into our hands is seen secondly in the mandate to eat meat. Okay, that's the second point this morning, the mandate to eat meat. Look there in verse 3, it says, Every moving thing that liveth shall we meet for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And so the second mandate here is the mandate to eat meat. And it's, it follows quickly on, as I said, from the first one. The idea that we have dominion over the animals. We're given this mandate to eat meat. Now originally, man was given the, the mandate to eat of every fruit of the ground. If you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1 where we were earlier, chapter 1 verse 29, <clears throat> it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree, yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And so originally man was given the mandate to eat of every fruit of the ground. Okay, every herb, every fruit of the tree, whatever it might be. And so in a world that was free from sin, in a world that was free from death, Man was given a plant-based diet. Okay, we were. We were given a plant-based diet to start off with. That was the original mandate. But now, as Noah and his family come off the ark, this has changed. God gives them the mandate to eat meat. And verse 3 makes it clear that just as man had been given the green herb to eat, man is now given every moving thing that liveth to eat. Look there in verse 3. It says, Every moving thing that liveth shall we meet for you even as... The green herb have I given you all things. So just as we have permission to eat of everything of the ground, we now have permission to eat of everything that is moving and living upon the earth. And this is the first time that we read of God giving this permission, uh, this instruction to eat meat. Now, I think I've mentioned it before, but that doesn't mean that man hasn't done it before now. Okay, uh, Especially probably amongst the descendants of Cain and others who didn't really care what God thought. They probably already have eaten of meat. But this is the first time God gives permission. God gives authority, gives instruction to man. And the question might be asked here, you know, why does God now make this change? Why now? Why does God now suddenly give Noah and his family the instruction, give mankind the instruction to eat meats? Well, the truth is the answer to that question is not clear, is it? It's not clear. Now, we can speculate that perhaps it has to do with the change that has taken place to the environment. Okay, remember, you know, the world before the flood was a totally different place, wasn't it? With the canopy and, and, and the perfect conditions on the earth. And things change after the flood. Man's lifespan shortens drastically. Things change. And so perhaps after the flood, it's, it's now necessary. And it wasn't beforehand. It's necessary for us to eat of meat to obtain the protein. I mean, we know that meat is good for us, isn't it? We need the protein in meat. We need uh, the, the sustenance and the health that it gives us. And so perhaps there is this change and it's now necessary whereas it wasn't before. But it's also possible that God desired to make clear the great gulf that exists between man and beast. God makes this clear with this. You know, that this is a gulf that the evolutionist would have us believe doesn't exist. You know, we are not the same as the animals. And the fact that God gives them into our hands to eat of them helps us understand that, doesn't it? 
that we're not the same. We are a superior being. We are created in the image of God. And the evolutionists, they don't want us to believe that. They want us to believe that we are all the same, that we're simply animals as well. Now, we look around the world today and we see the results of this kind of thinking, don't we? You know, animal lives are often valued above the life of man. Now, we put more value on it. And it's a complete reversal, a complete flipping around of what God intended, isn't it? We've elevated, elevated the animal up to a place that God never intended it to be. And so perhaps God puts this, this mandate in place to help us understand this gulf that exists between man and the animals. Now the truth is, but we can't be dogmatic as to exactly why God um, gives us this mandate now. But the important thing is that he does. Okay? God does. He gives us this permission. He gives us this authority to eat of meat. And it's an essential part of our diet in the post-flood world. You know, it's interesting to note here that there are no restrictions. There are no restrictions as to what animals Noah and his family and indeed mankind were to eat of. Look there in verse 3. It says, Every moving thing that liveth shall we meet for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Noah and his family are told to eat of every moving thing that liveth. You see, there's no restrictions here. There's no, there's no list given to Noah, is there? Okay? There's no list given to Noah of clean and unclean animals. It's, it's just a, a blanket statement. Every living thing. Everything that moveth. Now, of course, years later, the nation of Israel, they're going to be given a list, aren't they? Okay, they're going to be given a list of clean animals that they were to, to eat of. But here, there's no such restrictions. And this is a truth that's reaffirmed again in the New Testament, isn't it? Okay, we sort of go back to this in the New Testament. Turn over to 1 Timothy. Chapter 4 with me. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And of course, there's other passages we could look at as well. In the New Testament, it's made clear to us that all animals were able to partake of all. God says they're all sanctified through prayer. And so both before the call of the nation of Israel and after the foundation of the church, we are given this mandate to eat freely of every moving thing that liveth. There is no restriction there upon the kinds of meat that we can partake of. The only restriction given here in Genesis chapter 9 is concerning the blood. Let's go back there, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. It says, But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. This is the only restriction given to Noah and his family. God declared that the blood was not to be eaten uh, with the flesh. The animal was to be properly bled okay, before it was eaten. And the reason for this is clear. The blood is the life of the animal. The blood is the life of the animal. And you know, the blood representing the life was the portion that belonged to God. It was the portion given to God as atonement for sin. Let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 17. <clears throat> 
In Leviticus 17 and verse 11, Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And so it's the blood. It's the blood that would be given to God as a sacrifice, as atonement for sin, a covering for the sin of the people. You know, the word life in these verses is the same word that's also translated soul. You see, God created life, giving life, giving a soul to both man and beast. And we saw that when we looked at Genesis, didn't we? Looked at creation. We talked about this. And so the blood, it represents the life of the animal. And therefore, it is sacred to God. And this emphasis on the blood, of course, will be developed right throughout the Old Testament, won't it? Okay, it will be developed from this point on, this emphasis on the blood, the blood of the animal sacrifices that Israel is told to bring, being shed and, and being brought and placed upon the altar, being brought into the, the, the Holy of Holies and put upon the mercy seats. The blood uh, is, the, is being shed as atonement for the sin of the people. Of course, we know that those blood sacrifices were only a picture of the perfect sacrifice, weren't they? Okay, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God here emphasizes from the very beginning the sacredness of the blood. He's setting a place of principle, isn't he? Okay, the blood is sacred unto him. It's the blood that provides atonement for sin. It's the blood that gives evidence that the life of the sacrifice has been given. And therefore the blood was established as sacred to God and not to be consumed. But we are given here the mandate that we can eat meat. Okay, that's, that's what's the point here. Okay, the mandate to eat meat. And that brings us now third this morning to the mandate for capital punishment. The mandate for capital punishment. Let's go back there to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 5. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require... At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, uh, and at the hand, of, sorry, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Here we see that man's blood is even more sacred to God than the blood of an animal. Okay, and the reason, of course, is because man is created in the image of God. God's special, unique creation. You know, once again, we see emphasize the fact that man is different to the animals. We are different. We are not the same. Man is God's special, unique creation, created in his own image. You know, the animals were given life. They were given a soul. But man, we are also given eternal spirits. We have a spirit. And that enables us to have that relationship with God. You see, we are body, soul, and spirit. We are this unique part to us. And it's an eternal part as well. We, we continue to exist after physical death. And so God here counts the life of man as being special. It belongs to him. Anyone who takes the life of a man is therefore answerable to God. Answerable to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, let's turn over there. God declares that he's the one who gives life and takes life. Let's turn there, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. 
It says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. It says, I kill, I make alive. God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. It belongs to him. It, it, is, it is special to him. Likewise, in Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. God gives, God takes away. You see, the point is, life is a gift from God. And he alone has the right to authorize taking it away. To take someone's life is to act in the place of God. And thus we see here in our present passage that God declares that he will require satisfaction from any animal or man who unlawfully sheds human blood. Let's go back to Genesis 9 verse 5. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, uh, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Any man or animal who unlawfully sheds the blood of Man, God says that he requires satisfaction. And the satisfaction that God requires is the blood of the offending party. It's the death of the offending party. The one who killed is to be put to death. The word require here is a judicial term. God acting as judge declares severe and strict penalty for taking the life of another man. Now if it was a beast who was who killed a man, then it was to be taken out and put to death. Okay, Exodus 21 uh, reiterates that point. Let's turn over there. Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 28. Exodus 21 verse 28. It says, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall... He quits. God declares that the beast that kills a man is to be put to death. Again, the, the beast's life is not more valuable than the man's. It's to be put to death. And if a man was to kill another man, then he likewise, God says, was to be put to death. It was to be carried out, it says in verse 5, at the hand of every man's brother. Now, this is uh, God declaring here that there is a responsibility for man to see that justice is carried out. Okay, God's not uh, declaring here that family justice, you know, that you, uh, every man's brother, that you, you know, carry out family revenge. That's not what he's saying. God's declaring here, he's stressing the responsibility of men in general to see that justice is carried out, okay, upon their fellow man, okay. In essence, this is a command here. It's a command for man to establish a formal system of government to ensure that justice is done. That's really what this is a command to do, to establish government. You know, God here gives the responsibility and gives the authority to man to carry out capital punishments. Okay, this is a God-given responsibility, God-given authority. We said life belongs to God. He's the only one who can authorize it. God does authorize it here. He says that the government, the ones in authority, they have this authority now to do it. To deal with crime, to deal with, in particular here, the sin of murder. 
It says there in verse 6, it goes on, it says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so God gives this responsibility, this authority to man to carry out capital punishments. And God makes it clear that someone who takes the life of another, God says that the correct punishment is that they should be put to death. That's God's word. And we can argue against it all we like. That's God's word. That's what God says. And before the flood, you know, the world had, de- had descended into complete anarchy, hadn't it? Okay, before the flood, the world was in disarray. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. As we saw that when we looked at Genesis 6. The earth was not a nice place, was it? Not a nice place before the flood. It was filled with violence. In other words, it's a place of lawlessness. You know, men killing men, and others then seeking retribution, taking the law into their own hands. You know, there was evidently no formal system of government before the flood. There's no punishment for crime. There's no punishment or indeed any prevention of crime. The individual histories of Cain and Lamech, you know, they make that much clear, don't they? Now, Lamech in particular, when he killed another man, what did he do? He boasted about it. He was filled with pride at the fact that he killed someone else. He murdered someone. Let's just go back there and read it. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, I believe it is, chapter Chapter 4, verse 23. Genesis 4, verse 23, it says, And Lamech said unto his wives, Adar and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. He brags about it to his wives. He's proud about it. He's lifted up with pride, thinking no one can touch me. You see, this, in Lamech, you see really the epitome of the, the whole world at the time. There was this uh, violence, this lack of restraints, lack of law before the flood. And so the world had descended to a place of violence and anarchy. And so now after the flood, you know, the floods come and God's wiped the earth clean. What does God do? God gives Noah and his family the mandate to initiate government. Okay, that's what he's doing here. He says you've got to deal with wickedness. And he really starts at the top, doesn't he? He says, you've got to deal with murder. And that flows on to everything else. Deal with wickedness. Morris writes this, he says, it is clear, of course, that the authority for capital punishment implies also the authority to establish laws governing those human activities and personal relationships, which, if unregulated, could soon lead to murder. For example, robbery, adultery, etc., Thus, this simple instruction to Noah is the fundamental basis for all legal and governmental institutions. That's what God's doing here. He's giving authority to man and giving instruction to man to have government, have someone in authority who's going to deal with crime. You see, the point, in go- the point is that governments, they're given by God, aren't they? They're given by God to ensure that man does not descend, once again, back into complete anarchy. That's what the government's there to do. Our governments are given by God the authority to deal with those who break the law, including, but not limited to, the act of murder. In the New Testament, Paul makes this point clear. Let's go over there, Romans chapter 13. 
Romans 13, let's read from verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to, to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if they, thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For, this, for for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to them... To all their Jews, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Paul makes it clear in the New Testament that this is still true today. Governments are given by God. He says there in verse 1 that the powers that be are ordained of God. God's given them to us. And God has given them the authority to wield the sword. Okay, it says there in verse 4, and to execute wrath. Upon all them that doeth evil. That's God's mandate. God has given us governments for that purpose. Now sadly, when the government doesn't do its job or is unable to do its job, what happens? We descend into anarchy, don't we? Because the government's not doing what they're they're commissioned by God to do. We know as believers, as Paul points out there, we have a responsibility, don't we? A responsibility to respect and to obey the government that God has set over us to pray for them. Pray that God will give them wisdom in in making and upholding the law. And as believers, we ought to be the ones most of all that respect and obey the government that God has put over us, the authority that God has put in place. You know, this morning we've seen, and I hope understood, these three mandates given by God to Noah after exiting the ark. And you know, the, the point is that none of these mandates have ever been rescinded by God. You notice that? None of them have ever been rescinded. They're given by God to Noah and his family, to all mankind, and they have continued. They still exist today. These mandates are still in place for us today. You know, God has given man the mandate to multiply, to fill the earth, and to use the earth, to have dominion over all the animals who God has caused to fear and dread us. Of course, one of those uses, as we saw, is for food. God has given us the mandate to eat of every living thing upon the earth, reminding us that we are not the same as animals. We are created in God's image. And finally, God has given us the mandate to establish governments who are to exercise God's authority here on earth. As I was thinking about this week and thinking, what exactly is the application to all this to us? You know, it's interesting to note today that modern man is attacking what? These three mandates from God. You think about it. As we get further and further away from God, what do we want to do? We want to get rid of these mandates. We're destroying them. We're attacking them. Now, the first one, be fruitful and multiply, well, that's clearly under attack, isn't it? Same-sex marriage and everything else. We're just attacking... The whole institute. I mean, be fruitful and multiply. That's the idea of us, the marriage relationship, and that we have that family unity, that we have bring, bring forth offspring, and we fill the earth. 
That's the whole point there. Same-sex marriage goes completely against that, doesn't it? And everything else in that movement. And then, of course, going on from that, we then have the whole idea that we don't want to exercise dominion, do we? We don't want to exercise dominion over the earth. We don't want to use the earth as God has put it into our hands. Instead, we want to elevate creation and we want to worship it, don't we? We want to worship it. And we elevate it to a place that God never intended it to be, which, of course, leads us to elevate the animal life up to a place that it shouldn't be. And we have vegan activists calling upon us not to kill and not to eat meats. We're going against the mandate of God. And of course, the last one is under attack as we men want to cast off the shackles of government, the shackles of God-given government, and what's the result? Complete anarchy. You only have to look at the U.S. right now and all the riots and everything that's taking place there and their, their, their calls to get rid of the police and everything else. It's complete anarchy, isn't it? What are they trying to do? Get rid of God-given authority. You see, the point is God gave us these three mandates for a reason. They're the very foundation of society. Okay? These, they're given to us for a reason. They help us to understand our position in this earth and understand that we're not animals, that we are created in the image of God, and they help us to understand our purpose on this earth. And they help us also to maintain order and discipline, not descend into anarchy. God gave us these mandates for a reason. And you know, once again, what we see is that God's way is always best, isn't it? God's way is always best, and God's way is always right. Let's close in the word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, these mandates that you gave to Noah and his family, you gave to mankind, Lord, it becomes clear that, Lord, more and more today, mankind wants to cast off these mandates, go against the things you instructed us to do, to attack them more and more. And Lord, at times that may seem like trivial things, but Lord, they're important. They're the very foundation that you set in place. Lord, may you help us as believers to remember these things, help us to remember that your way is always best. Help us to give glory and praise to you for your knowledge and your wisdom in these things. May you bless now as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.